0: My name is Andy, I'm an elder here, and I do say this every time, but every time it is a privilege to read scripture and pray with, with all of you. This morning's scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses one through 12. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you. We honor you. We want to glorify your name. You alone are worthy and worth our praises. Your love for us overwhelms. We do not have words to describe it. In your presence we are undone. But yet, you welcome our prayers and our worship, imperfect as they are. You sent your Spirit here to live within us, to help. He guides us. I cannot comprehend how this is, but I know it to be true. The love you have for us, the sacrifice you made of your Son, Jesus, to redeem us, to draw us closer to you, no, to allow us to be near to you, that is what you do. We call you Father, and that is right. You restore us you discipline us, and you give us life, a life everlasting and eternal with you, free from sin, pain, depression, and illness, free from all of the brokenness that is part of this world. Thank you, Father. Thank you. That you, for the time being, right now in this building, that is where your creation resides, in this body, the church, where we can find rest and restoration, where we have brothers and sisters in Christ who help, where we share this life's trials and victories, where we together worship you, our Lord. God, we thank you for all we have this morning as it is all there through you. We thank you for voices to worship you with and minds to learn about your goodness. Thank you for changed hearts that love you and a will for an eternity We pray this morning as your sons and daughters and ask for your blessing on this service. Lord, let each of our hearts be soft and eager to know you more. We ask for the Holy Spirit to work here this morning in each of us. Lord, we ask for healing where it is needed, and we ask for conviction as well. Use us and grow us, we ask. And now specifically we pray for your strengthening and for your guidance of Duncan as he brings us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, we continue, as you might imagine, our short series of messages tailored around this capital campaign, new chapter, same gospel. By the way, if you're new here and you're thinking, I came in the wrong week. <laughs> This is, I'm not going to be here to give for this campaign. I totally get that. Please know this. These are eternal truths that may or may not you choose to apply to what is happening here in terms of the campaign. So it doesn't matter, really. It's relevant because we're going to be talking about things that are transcendent, that are far beyond what we're talking about here in the campaign. So we introduced some of these themes last week as it relates to biblical generosity, Um, And so we want to continue to dive a little deeper today. First of all, we noted that how we manage God's money is an incredibly important indicator of our spiritual health. This is not on the margins. Jesus talked about this topic more than any other topic, 10 to 20 times more than he talked about things like sex. So this is a huge, hugely important topic we saw that Jesus has an implied warning about finances, and it's directed especially to people like us who live in a materially wealthy culture. He does this in part Of what's called the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He compares, as we saw last week, four soils into which the seed of the gospel is sown, and each particular soil represents a certain heart, a kind of heart, into which the gospel seed is given. And he talks about the third soil, which is the one we looked at last week. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This truth that Jesus teaches here is regularly referenced as an accurate diagnosis of what so much of what is wrong in the Western church. As a church that exists in this materialistic culture, the sad reality is that a major reason the Holy Spirit exerts so little comparative influence in the Western church as compared to other places in the world is because even with all of our wealth of biblical resources, in many ways we're like this third soil. Because we're so blessed with the things of this world, we can easily allow what Jesus calls the cares of this world to distract us away from a pure love of Christ and having the a kingdom agenda that he has, and that distraction chokes us off from spiritual fruitfulness, which includes being generous with what he's given to us. For decades, the discouraging statistic that was constantly trotted out every time you heard a message on giving in the evangelical church is that 25% of professed believers tithe. That is, they give a tenth of their income. I don't know when that changed, but a reputable study back in 2021 found that now 13% of evangelicals tithe or give 10% of the money away, and half of evangelicals, these are Bible-believing Christians, give less than 1% of their income to the Lord. The average among evangelicals that they give to the Lord is 2.4%. That's the average, and so to reference Jesus's parable, that is a lot of third soil, choked seed giving in the church. If, as we've seen before, that for many believers a tithe is a good place to start to measure generosity, that means that only a small percentage of believers in the West have not allowed the cares of this world to choke off the fruit of generosity. We saw in this parable that Jesus says another way that our material wealth chokes us spiritually is what he calls the deceitfulness of riches. We saw that the New Testament consistently pairs wealth and deceit. Wealth is inherently deceitful. Among other things, that means that we can never, on our own, independent, Accurately determine whether we've been spiritually distracted by the cares of this world because our wealth has a self-deceiving quality to it This is what makes the sin of greed or covetousness different than other sins For instance, when you're talking about other sins like adultery No one has to wonder whether they're guilty of that They just know it's black and white But the sin of greed unlike other sins of the flesh, is self-deceiving. And it's much harder for us to clearly see whether we're guilty of it. And Jesus says one reason why we can be far less certain about the presence of greed in our hearts is because our riches are deceitful. The point is, whether we tithe or not, none of us should assume that we're just fine in this area. Someone outside ourselves is necessary to reveal the truth about our hearts, and that someone, of course, is the Holy Spirit who speaks most often through his word. We saw from Hebrews chapter 4 that it says the Spirit uses the word of God to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart as he shines a light on those dark parts of our heart that we're not even sure are there and it exposes our hidden idleness. That reveals to us previously unknown areas of greed and covetousness that we can't see on our own. We closed last week by beginning to think, just on very practical terms, about how is a church of about 100 people supposed to raise $400,000 during inflationary times. I mean, that's ultimately in this campaign where the rubber meets the road. And so we looked at that question in just first, just general terms, using Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That means that we're only going to be able to do this as we actively trust in the Lord and look to him to work through us. It's not going to happen because You know, North Shore, we're just generous people. No, this is going to happen only if God, as the master builder, supernaturally works in our hearts to accomplish this. But Paul gives a much more specific supernatural example of what this looks like. What does the grace of God look like as it relates to financial generosity? And you just heard it from Andy, as he read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We saw that the inflationary times that we are experiencing are not nearly as challenging as what the Macedonian churches, that Paul cites as examples of God's grace and giving generosity, what they were facing. They were experiencing a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. I don't think probably anyone here would say extreme poverty. That means you got nothing or very little of anything, and yet... The grace of God was seen in that they overflowed in a wealth of generosity, but it wasn't just these poverty-stricken believers were sacrificially generous in financial terms. The grace of God was also seen in the attitudes of their hearts. They experienced an abundance of joy in their giving. Paul said these believers gave not only voluntarily, but they were begging us for the Earn, for earnestly for the favor of taking part. So there's no pressure. There's no manipulation from the apostle here. Their giving came from the grace of God that had loosened the purse strings of their heart and filled them with joy. And so this morning we want to take a deeper dive into this text. What is grace giving at a deeper level? Beginning in verse 6, Paul's talking about sending Titus, one of his apostolic representatives, to collect the money from these Corinthian believers he'd been taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem that was absolutely destitute because of a famine that had hit there. And this is what he says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." As we've seen many times, when a biblical author repeats himself, especially in the span of only a few verses, that's not an accident. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, this is important, so listen to this. And this word grace, or the concept of grace, he just repeats in virtually every verse here. He used it, first of all, back in verse 1 of chapter 8, where referring to this incredible generosity of the churches, he says, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. But now as he turns to encourage the Corinthians to imitate this grace that he saw in the Macedonian church, he again repeatedly repeats (laughs) this initiative of grace. He talks about it in verse 6 as this act of grace, verbatim verse 7, this act of grace. In verse 8, he repeats the truth by implication, by saying of his request for them to give generously, I say this not as a command. Paul emphasizes that he's not using his apostolic authority to compel these believers to dig a little deeper or give until it hurts, It's important here we remember how that contrasts with how he uses other areas of his apostolic authority. If believers were guilty of some scandalous sin, none of us have ever read in any of Paul's letters, I'm not issuing you a command on this. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) he let him have it. He issued a command, stop doing this or start doing that if you're in sin. But in the area of financial generosity, Paul seems to fall over himself, clarifying that he's not commanding generosity on their part. In chapter 9, he reiterates this truth. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, Paul takes pains here to clarify, to basically draw a picture of what grace giving looks like. It's giving that is not given reluctantly or under compulsion. A reluctant giver is characterized by someone who's dealing with internal doubts and reservations about his or her giving. Well, I don't know if I should be giving this way. I mean, after all, we, we have a mortgage and we have the kids' college fund we just started and our furnace is 20 years old. Now, those may very well be valid concerns, but in a heart impacted by God's grace, those are not overruling concerns because a heart impacted by the grace of God is instead busy trying to figure out what expenses in my life can I eliminate so I'll have more money to give away. That's grace. If grace is not operating in your heart and you're reluctant to give generously, that means that the only thing that will compel generosity from you is if some external force beats down your reluctance and pressures you to pry your clinging fingers off your checkbook and cough up a donation. That's what Paul talks about when he speaks of giving under compulsion. Sadly, sometimes that kind of external compulsion can come through fear, manipulation. By the way, you know, hell is filled with uh, stingy people, just saying. (laughs) Or laying a guilt trip on somebody, you know. How would you like it if you were in need and someone sat on their wallet? Even worse is when you bring in, on top of that, some wretched theology to manipulate people to give. You know, if you give generously, God's going to make you wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. Those kind of external compulsion-based appeals are not directed at your heart. (laughs) They're giving you your sense of fear or your sense of guilt or even, in the case of the prosperity gospel, your greed. And sadly, those techniques can be very effective at raising money in the short term. If someone is a skilled manipulator, that can be a cash cow. But in those instances, the people are not giving for the glory of God. Which means that no matter how much money is raised, it's a massive failure in God's sight. Paul reveals that none of that is grace-giving. Grace-giving happens when it's the product of God's grace being expressed through your heart. And we saw that grace-giving is marked by cheerfulness, not Compulsion, in the case of the Macedonians, they considered that generous sacrificial giving was a favor that Paul had asked them to do, and they begged him to allow them to do it. Paul says in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now this is curious because... He says, he commands these believers to excel in an act of grace. Think about that. I mean, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, if something is an act of grace, how can someone tell you to excel in it? That's a fair question. If grace is something God does, (laughs) how can Paul call on these believers to excel in an act of grace? Well, there's two truths to understand about how excelling is not only not contradictory to the grace of God, frankly, it can be an expression of the grace of God. First, he speaks of the Corinthians that excelled in faith and speech and knowledge. We know from 1 Corinthians that Paul is not talking about Corinthians' works or effort here. He's talking about their spiritual gifts. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, who takes this church to task for their spiritual gift abuse, in chapter one, he's very clear to say, but you are a richly gifted church, and he, he thanks God for it. He says, I give thanks to my God always for, for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, just that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. There you go. It's right there. Paul admits that by the grace of God, this church was spiritually gifted in some amazing ways. They had gifts of speech and knowledge. Chapter 12 says they have gifts of faith that could bring miracles. But Paul also says they must excel in all earnestness. It's a great word. We don't use it very often. It means zeal. Well, zeal may sound like that has to be the product of some self-generated, gritty determination and not God's grace. But That's not what the Bible teaches, and Paul's ministry is an example of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's comparing his ministry as an apostle with the other apostles' ministry. He says something very illuminating here. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me." Paul says, I worked harder. (laughs) I was more earnest than any of the other apostles. And then he says, and that was the sheer grace of God. The grace of God is not passive. When the grace of God has captured your heart, you can work like a dog and do it cheerfully because it's the work of grace that God has done in your heart. And as it relates to financial generosity, Paul calls on these believers to excel in the grace of giving. So what he's saying is, yes, give generously, but make sure it's from God's grace. This wasn't giving under the law. It wasn't giving under some external compulsion. It was grace giving because he's saying it needs to come from your heart. Contrast that with the Old Testament giving under the law. Now in the Old Testament, many of you know that there were three tithes commanded of the Jews. They needed to give for various reasons. One was to support the priesthood and other administrative costs. There were There was a tithe to give to the needy and the destitute, and then there was a tithe to finance the Jewish festivals and other related expenses. These were commanded by law in the Pentateuch, and that meant that the average Jew, who was a breadwinner, was giving 20 to 30 percent of their income away, and it was required by law. Now, although it was stipulated that the money shouldn't be given grudgingly, it was the law. You give it, or you're guilty of breaking the law. Malachi chapter 3 warns that a failure to give the tithe meant you were robbing God. And the implication is, God doesn't like to be robbed, and so you better not steal from God. There's no mention of cheerfulness or begging for the privilege of giving, and yet when Paul speaks... Of giving in Second Corinthians here, his main emphasis is not on the amount or following the law, not robbing God. His main emphasis is on giving by God's grace, with the right heart attitude, cheerfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So how do we explain the difference between Old Testament giving, which was basically like paying your taxes, and New Testament giving, which is far more about giving out of the grace of God? Well, the explanation is in many places in the Old Testament, but especially in places like Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet is predicting that one day a new and a different means of serving God is going to come into being under the new covenant that is going to be given. And so he says this about this new covenant that's coming And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." We could spend an awful lot of time talking about New Covenant and New Covenant theology, but the main difference between Old Testament giving and New Testament giving traces back right here. In the New Covenant that God would make with his people, the law is no longer going to be on the outside like a policeman, commanding his people what they're supposed to do, and if they don't do it, judgment comes. No, by the grace of God, The law is going to be written on hearts. Our obedience will increasingly be something we want to do. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet explains how that's going to happen. And he says it's the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit that God is going to cause to dwell within his new covenant people. Not as a divine policeman, but as a personal friend. That's what what Jeremiah means when he says, they will know me. This new covenant relationship is going to be marked by personal intimacy with God. And in a personally intimate relationship with God, you do what he says increasingly because you want to do it, not because he's some impersonal policeman. He's your intimate. He's your friend. Jeremiah says this new covenant relationship will be possible because God will permanently remove the one impediment that separates us from intimacy with God He's going to remove our unforgiven sin. This new covenant is rooted in the fact that God will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But again, it's not simply the removal of legal guilt, legal pardon, though that's there. It's more than that. This is a formation of they will know me. This is personal intimacy that the New Testament calls sonship. Adoption. The Spirit of God will cause us to relate to God as our Father. Of course, our sin was, we know, removed by Jesus on the cross if we're trusting in Him. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we quote Jesus at the Last Supper and says, This cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. This is what makes possible the grace of God and the grace-giving that Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians. By the grace of God, our hearts have been transformed by the Spirit of God, and this transformation was performed through Christ and his death on the cross. And it shouldn't surprise anybody that in this treatment of grace-giving, Paul references the saving work of Christ on the cross as the basis of our generosity. Paul does this by holding him up as another example of God's grace. This is what God's grace looks like. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, back in verse 1, Paul, as we saw last week, he holds these Macedonian churches up as examples of God's grace, but here he holds Jesus up as the supreme example of the grace of God. As it relates to giving in particular. In this context of financial generosity, he speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Well, what does he mean here when he talks about the impoverishment of Jesus? Jesus became poor. Well, of course, he's talking about Jesus' existence before he came to earth in his incarnation. He's talking about the glory that the pre-incarnate Son of God left in order to come to earth as our Savior. Before his incarnation in heaven, we have to remember Jesus received perpetual glory through the constant worship given to him by all the sinless heavenly beings. The seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 continually cry out to the pre-incarnate Son of God, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Saying that to the pre-incarnate Son of God. He was constantly receiving worship, and not just any worship. He was constantly receiving perfect worship from perfect and awesome angelic beings. The pre-incarnate Son of God in heaven had the absolute freedom to exercise every one of his divine attributes whenever he wanted to. He was omniscient. He knew everything. He was infinite. He had no limitations upon him in any way. He was not held by time. He lived outside of time. The past and the present and the future were all completely knowable and accessible to him. He was omnipotent. No task of his, no desire was beyond his ability to perform. We can't understand any of that. And yet that's only a very tiny bit of what Paul talks about when he says he was rich. Believers will know only in glory how inconceivable Jesus' pre-existence before his incarnation was. We'll only know then just a little bit of how much he gave up. And when he was born into this world, There were no sinless, heavenly creatures singing his praises. Also, when he took on human flesh, theologians like Millard Erickson says that when he took on human flesh, that was literally like putting on a straitjacket. And if you read the Gospels, it's very clear that that straitjacket kept Jesus from the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Millard Erickson says that when the second person of the Trinity became a man, that meant that each and every exercise of his divine power required the Holy Spirit to check off on that. He could never display any of his divine attributes independently apart from another member of the Godhead granting him permission. He never stopped being God in any of that. But having to take on a human body meant, for instance, he was no longer obviously omnipresent. He could be in one place at one time. He surrendered at least some of his perfect, inexhaustible knowledge. There are times when Jesus says, I don't know the answer to this. When he meets the father of that young boy who was convulsing on the ground in demonic oppression, he says, How long has this been happening to him? He didn't know. When he came to earth, he became subject to the laws of physics and physiology, if you will. Gravity held him to the ground just like it holds us to the ground. He got hungry. He needed to eat. He got thirsty. He needed to drink. He became captive to time. He had only 24 hours in a day. When he was tired, he needed sleep. Again, none of those things Mean anything to us, nor does it mean that he wasn't anything other than perfectly and fully God. It just means that when he stepped out of the eternal realm into this time and space dimension, he gave up immeasurably more than we could ever possibly imagine. We don't feel the slight bit impoverished by the fact that we cannot fly around this room right now or fathom all of life's deepest mysteries. We can't do that anyway. We don't feel at a loss at not being able to be perfectly, absolutely in control of all of our circumstances. But our Lord gave up all of that for us. He was impoverished in even more powerful ways. He experienced something he had never in eternity known. He experienced suffering. For an eternity, he'd never experienced suffering. He suffered the foolishness of hard-hearted people who told him to take a walk. He suffered from the pain of the death of people he loved, like family members. Almost certainly, Joseph died before he grew up. Finally, he suffered from the betrayal of those who, when he needed them the most, left him high and dry. He suffered the humiliation and agony of the crucifixion by the hands of men that he created. Most of all, he suffered the inconceivable anguish when the Father, who had loved him for eternity, passed, instead turned away and poured out his fierce, angry wrath on him. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, for your sake he became poor. Paul says that kind of infinite impoverishment is what the grace of God looks like in its fullest expression. God's grace causes people to surrender what is most comfortable and most convenient and most enjoyable and most prized and instead give it to others and to do it cheerfully, and Jesus did all that of course so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now that means so many things, but ultimately what that means is that one day in glory, though we will never be God, we will be living like God. We'll be seated on the throne of God with God, Revelation says. Paul says to these Corinthians, that's what the grace of God looks like in its generosity and its ultimate expression in Christ. Mortal humans could never be that generous because we don't have any of that to give away. The point is, this is the flavor of God's grace as it relates to giving your money away. The aroma of Christ given off in his surrender of his heavenly riches so that we might become rich. When you take that generosity of God's grace in Christ and you see it in human form, it looks like these Macedonian churches. When your heart has been liberated by the gospel from the cares of this world and when the fire of God's grace has burned away the deceitfulness of riches, that's what it looks like. So how do we apply this? (laughs) Apply it a lot of ways, but just to the campaign. Well, just to put it in negative terms, does an American church made up of people who live in comparative wealth but where the average professed believer gives 2.4% of their money away, does that smell like God's grace? It smells. That smells like people whose spiritual lives are in the life-choking grip of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. As it relates to grace giving, that means that if you don't want to give generously, the grace of God is not at work within you. Because there's no cheerfulness at the prospect of giving sacrificially. If you're willing to give what's only convenient, that's not God's grace in us. There was nothing convenient about the cross. If you want to give only your fair share, whatever that means, Christ did far more than his fair share on the cross. If we figure out what we want to do with our money and then give what's left over, that's not the Macedonian grace of God. The question is, do we want our giving to be an expression of God's grace, or are we satisfied with giving something that can be explained perfectly by the means of good home budgeting principles. Grace-giving is supernatural. Grace-giving requires the Holy Spirit to make us cheerful givers. And most of all, as it relates to grace-giving, we can only give by grace if we've received grace. For genuine believers, the reason why the grace of God is not very visible in their giving or other areas of their life is because you can't give what you don't have. What I mean is that this, if you're a believer whose Christianity has slid back out of grace into performance-based religion, your life will not smell like grace. If you can't say with deep conviction and with a glorious smile on your face that you are more sinful than you could ever know and more loved than you ever dared believe, you have no grace to give. So here's what you do. Just in light of this morning's text, sometime, every day this week, Think about Christ's impoverishment, that he left the infinite riches of heaven in exchange for the straitjacket of humanity, in exchange for the pain and suffering of living in a sinful world, and the unique pain and suffering of living as our Savior. You think about all of that. Spend some time with that. And as you're thinking about that, remember one eternally important truth, and that is, In eternity past, as Christ was contemplating all of that, of course he knows the future, so he knew all it was, every strike of the hammer into his crucified flesh, he knew it all. Perfectly before it happened. And as he was contemplating all of that deprivation and all of that impoverishment, just remember, he was thinking of you. Do you believe that? He was thinking of you. He didn't do any of that in the abstract or in the hypothetical. This was deeply personal. Your name was all over what he did and what he gave. And so you need to think about the impoverishment and you need to remember he did it because you were here, because you were needy, because he had chosen you before you had come to earth, before you'd done anything good, and when he knew every bad thing you were ever going to do, every bad thing, he said, I'm giving it all up for your name here. When that gets into your heart, you're going to be generous. You can't help but be generous because the grace of God has been planted in there. When you believe that, I don't mean know it up here, I mean when you believe that, that's going to unlock all the covetousness and all the greed that we're tempted to have. If you make a habit of preaching the gospel to yourself, which is what I just said, Your life is going to change in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is your pocketbook is going to open up. And you're going to be like the Macedonians. And you're going to be like Jesus, who's willing to impoverish himself so that others might become rich and do it for the joy set before him. May God give us the grace to do that for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, it all comes down to the Gospel. It always does. Everything flows out of the Gospel. Everything goes back to the Gospel. Everything starts with the Gospel and and flows back around to the Gospel. And so God, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would enable the Gospel to completely infect our hearts. That we would be mesmerized by the free grace of God. And Father, if there are people here today who've never experienced it, who've never looked at Jesus in the midst of their sinfulness and said, I need you, would you save me? Would you spend some of that blood that you shed on the cross to wipe away my sin? God, I pray that your spirit would enable that to happen even today. God, we're just so grateful that we could never outgive you because you left everything. You impoverished yourself so that we could be rich, and God, we are rich. If all the banks fail tomorrow, we are wealthy beyond belief because of what you've done for us for Je- in Jesus. God, transform us through the gospel for Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray, amen.